Tonight, uh, as Ruth said, we are starting a new series, although it's really part two or season two of a, a previous series back in October 2013, and it kind of ran right through to April 2014. We started reading and considering the story of David, who is, as we all know, a highly prominent and influential character in the biblical narrative. And David's story is long and it's fascinating. It twists and it turns. There are many highs, but there are also more than enough lows. It starts in 1 Samuel 16, whenever as the youngest of eight brothers, he is surprisingly chosen and anointed to become the king of all Israel. Primarily, it would seem, because God saw his heart. And his story then dominates not just the following 15 chapters of 1 Samuel but it occupies the whole of 2 Samuel, another 24 chapters, and even the opening two chapters of 1 Kings. That's 42 chapters in all. So apart from Jesus himself, there is no person in Scripture who occupies more airtime or print space. So David is a key figure, and in part one of his story, we, we tracked his journey from shepherd to king a journey that included giant slaying and living life as a fugitive because David spent years on the run from Saul, the first king of Israel who wanted to kill him. We called that first series Walking the Walk, which was based on something that God actually said to David's son Solomon after David had died and just as Solomon became king. If you walk before me faithfully, Solomon, with integrity of heart and uprightness as your father David did. Now, we all know that, and we'll increasingly discover this during season two, David didn't walk with integrity and godliness all the time, nor every single time. But even in light of his mistakes and his failures, God saw his heart. And therefore, he still urged Solomon to walk like David walked. And that's important and that's helpful because David may have been a man after God's own heart, as he's described in Acts, but David was far from perfect. And so this time around, as we, we pick up the story at the halfway point, we're calling this, this new series, Talking the Talk. Because after David becomes king, he makes some of his biggest mistakes. After his rise to power, he makes some atrocious decisions, does some horrendous things. David talks a good game some of the time. He talks the talk, but he doesn't always walk the talk, which is always the challenge. Now, that might sound, or this might sound, like a totally negative title for a new series, as if we're just going to isolate all David's failures and have a go at him. But there's more to this title than that. Because at another level, talking the talk can have and does have a more positive spin, in that whenever David did mess up, whenever he did fall, whenever he did stumble, whenever he did get it wrong, and when he was confronted about it, he talked to God. He repented. He spoke words of confession. 
And so talking the talk, taking our failures and our failings to God in prayer and in dialogue is a very positive practice. And therefore, I want to suggest that we have lots to learn about talking the talk in that sense. I do hope and pray that over the next, and I'm not quite sure how long this series is going to run for, but I do hope and pray that we will will reflect further and deeper about our journeys and our walk and our talk as Christians in the, in the 21st century. Okay, so let's, let's pick up the story from where we left off. Uh, it's at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's page 309 on the Red Pew Bibles. Just as you're looking that up, let me give you a little more background detail. When David does become king, he is 37 and a half years old. One of the first things he does as king is that he captures Jerusalem, which then becomes his power base. And from this point forward, it is then referred to as the city of David. David is in a good place at this point in time. He's in a good place physically, emotionally, strategically, spiritually. And 2 Samuel 5 verse 10 says this, and David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. And that's critical. Because hearing and knowing that God is with you changes absolutely everything, or at least it should. Throughout Scripture, you often come across this idea. So, for example, in Exodus 3, as Moses tries to get his head around what God is asking him to do, we read, God answered, Moses, I will be with you. I'll be with you. In Joshua 1, as he contemplates stepping into big shoes and leading the Israelites to the promised land, he receives this promise from God. Don't be discouraged, Joshua, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In Jeremiah 1, as the prophet uh, protested because he couldn't speak for he felt he was too young and no one's going to listen to me, God, God says to him, don't be afraid of the people, Jeremiah, for I will be with you. When the Messiah is born, he's given the name Emmanuel, God with us. And as Jesus was returning to their father, he reminded his disciples, listen, I am with you. I will be with you right to the end of the age. You see, the reason for David's rise to power, the reason that David was now king, the reason that David is an all-time hero of the Christian faith, the reason he is remembered as a man after God's own heart is because God was with him. God was with him. And for those of us here this evening who follow Jesus, and I know that's probably the majority of us. Please take that as a word of encouragement and empowerment. God is with you wherever you will go. No matter how you feel, afraid, intimidated, out of your depth, whatever, God is with you as he was with David. Back to the story. David builds himself in Jerusalem a home, a palace. He marries some more concubines and wives, and he has more sons and daughters. And to top it all, after he has consulted the Lord, he defeats the Philistines yet again. David appears to be a man at this point in the story with the Midas touch. 
Everything he touches turns to gold. But then you arrive at chapter 6, and there's a bit of a shift. Things don't quite go according to plan. Failure and frustration occur. God gets angry. David gets angry. Relationships, important ones, start to feel the pressure, start to feel the strain. And in the midst of it all, there is worship. Full-on, jubilant, no-holes-barred worship. So let's stand and read the first 15 verses together. Page 309. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Belat and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadad, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and tambourines and rattles and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed the bull in a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Grab a seat. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in this whole chapter. I just want to highlight and explore a few key thoughts. The ark of God was incredibly important. Let's get a little bit of congregational participation. What did the ark of God symbolize at this time? God's presence. It symbolized God's presence with his people, and therefore David wanted it in his city. He wanted it in Jerusalem. And so he and a whole crowd of others go to Bela of Judea to get it and to transport it back. We read they put it on a new cart. And two guys, Yuza and Ohio, kind of drove it, steered it, walked alongside it, had some responsibility for its transit. And as it traveled along, David, etc., lots of others, danced or celebrated before the Lord with all their might, it says. This procession was accompanied by exuberant, uninhibited, unrestricted worship. 
all is good. Again, not quite. The oxen who are dragging the cart stumble. The cart shudders. And so Yuza reaches out to steady the ark of God. And as a result, God gets angry and strikes Yuza dead. Right there. Right in front of everyone. Now, surely what Yuza did was understandable. It was well-meaning. It's just a natural reaction. Well, apparently not. He dies. It's brutal. It's shocking. And there's no attempt to explain it or justify it in the text. So how do you explain that? How do we get our heads around a moment like this? Well, let me attempt to explain it and stress a vitally crucial lesson. And let's start with a lesson. God, and we've been singing this, God is holy. And disregarding or playing fast and loose with that reality and fact can be deadly. The holiness and the majesty of God is not something to be messed with, trifled with, taken lightly. It matters. As Yuza and David and a whole bunch of witnesses disturbingly discovered. You see, when God is no longer held in awe, no longer treated with reverence by the people of God or by his enemies either, there will be consequences sometimes extreme. When God's word is ignored, when it's compromised, when it's diluted, when it's sidelined, it provokes a response. Yes, we can take it or leave it, but God can't. So back to this kind of distressing scene. What is it that has gone wrong? What went wrong? What provoked this anger? Well, for one thing, the ark was meant to be handled by Levites, Levitical priests, and them alone. Now, I know some think that Yuza may have been a Levite, but the evidence is inconclusive. Maybe the bigger issue relates to how it was meant to be moved around. Because you see, and many of you know this, the biblical text is specific, or rather God is specific. According to Exodus 25, 14, it was meant to be, how, a bit more congregational participation, how was the ark meant to be transported? Carried on poles that were to be threaded through handles at the side of the ark. Why? So that no one would touch it. There was no need for a cart, not even a new one. And there was certainly no need for oxen. In fact, again, those of you who know the story, to put the ark on a cart was a Philistine invention. According to 1 Samuel 6, this is how the Philistines, when they captured it, transported it. And therefore, this was hardly something that was to be copied or emulated. And that in itself throws up an interesting challenge regarding the choices we make about certain things, particularly things where God has spoken. 
things that God has spoken about, God has spoken into, God has revealed in His Word, do we imitate others, whether that's people, the prevailing culture, the accepted norm, or do we obey God? I want to suggest that's a challenge that we individually and as a church face and will continually face and will constantly face and possibly will increasingly face. Who are we going to copy? Who are we going to imitate? David and those involved in transporting the ark, they messed up in a number of ways. One, they had lost a sense or they were losing a sense of awe and reverence regarding the holiness of God. Secondly, they had forgotten God's word, his clear, explicit instructions. They just sidelined them. They ignored them. And thirdly, they hadn't learned from the not-too-distant past. Because you see, in 1 Samuel 6, whenever the ark was returned by the Philistines on a cart to the Israelites, some of the Israelites decided to have a wee look into the ark. Again, something they were not meant to do. Careless. And we read, and, and again, this is the shocking aspect of Scripture. Seventy of those who looked into the ark were struck dead. Rather than learn from history, David, user, just repeated it. And I realize that user's story is harsh and it's uncomfortable, and maybe he is as much a victim as a villain, but whatever else is going on here and whatever else we take from this, let's be careful that we maintain as individuals and as a church, a sense of awe and wonder regarding the holiness of God. As one writer comments, this is a solemn lesson. In an age where, an honest, where assumed familiarity with God is more of a danger for the church than an undue awe and fear of Him. Let's be careful, church, to maintain a sense of awe a sense of wonder. Secondly, let's take on board and remain committed to the importance of, to the obedience to God's word. We know that if we truly love, says Jesus, you will obey. If you truly love me, you'll obey me. And let's not repeat past mistakes. And there are plenty of them. Let's learn from them. Back to the story. David then gets angry and afraid. And so he decides, I'm going to abandon this mission. And therefore, he leaves the ark with Obed, Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And thankfully, anger doesn't have the last word. It rarely does in Scripture. And so we read that at this point in the story, it ends with blessing because God blesses this non-Israelite. He blesses him and his entire household. And as a result, after three months, because word gets through to David that God has blessed this non-Israelite as a result of the ark of God, the God being with him. And so as a result, after three months, David decides, okay, this time we're going to try again. Only we're going to do things differently, very differently. Look at verse 13. When those who were, note, don't miss this, 
when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. He sacrificed the bull and a fattened calf. This time round, the ark is not put on a cart, it's carried. And if you flick over to first, and you don't need to do this, it's on the screen. If you flick over to First Chronicles 15, you read another version of this incident which sheds even further light on events. Then David said, no one but the Levite may carry the ark of the Lord because the Lord chose them to carry the ark. And the Levites carried the ark of the God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. Lesson learnt. And if nothing else, what this does in this moment reveals, David had a teachable heart. Yes, he messed up, he got it wrong, he put it in a cart, user reached out and touched it. But after all that happened, he's learnt his lesson, he's learnt from the past. Here's a heart willing to learn. David recognized the errors of his ways. He accepted he had messed up, and therefore he puts things right. He decides, now I'm going to obey God, I'm going to do God, things God's way, the right way. Plus, after just six steps, and I want you to admit, those must have been a nervous first six steps. But after six steps, they pause and offer a sacrifice. No one's taking anything for granted this time. No one's doing their own thing. Their acute awareness of God, their sense of his divine presence, their desire to do what is right is now tangible. The casual approach is gone. And God honoring obedience and worship has been restored. And I don't want to read too much into this, although I don't think you have to read very, very much. Into, but surely this realignment and thinking and of practice and behavior is a reminder to us about the importance of recognizing that all we do, whether it's in here from seven to eight or half ten to a quarter to twelve on a Sunday, or 24-7, everything we do is done before God and for his glory. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We said earlier, God is with us. Yes, that encourages, that empowers, but it also reminds us that what we say and what we think and how we behave and what we do is done before a holy God. Note to self. Back to the story, because again, first time round, David is out front celebrating, dancing with all his might. This time, David's lost in wonder, love, and praise. He's out front again, dancing with all his might. It's an arresting image, and, and this is quite an arresting image. Such energy in worship is striking. It's compelling, and yet, let's be honest, it's a little unnerving. It's a little uncomfortable, it's a little unseemly, thank you very much. I did suggest to Ruth a break at this point for some undignified dancing like David, but she wasn't up for leading it, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, although I even say that with a certain degree of tongue-in-cheek, there is a challenge here about our expression of worship and praise. Enthusiasm and joyful exuberance may be appropriate at times. And often the issue is, if we're honest, it's more about what others think than about what God thinks or deserves. 
And we've often made the point that our worship should be for an audience of one, but that's easier to say than to practice. We are conscious about who's watching and their perception of us, aren't we? Now, I'm not advocating a free-for-all or a total disregard for those around us. Do you know something? Our lack of awareness of the impact our actions are having on those around us is a form of self-indulgence. Let me repeat that again. Our lack of awareness of the impact of our actions, that our actions are having on those around us is a form of self-indulgence. But, but what I am hoping for, what I am promoting, what I am backing is a freedom in worship where people are able to express themselves as they want. With hands raised or firmly by their side, on our knees or on our feet, standing still or not. Let's not be specific because at the end of the day, it's not about what we do. It's about how we do it. It's about our attitude. And therefore, we must worship. We must express our worship in humility, with integrity, and in spirit, and in truth. David danced with all his might. And guess what? Not everyone was impressed. Not everyone liked it. Not everyone thought it was appropriate. As the ark arrived back in Jerusalem, back into the city of David, Michael, Michael, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name, David's wife, one of his wives, looked out the window, saw her husband dancing, and then we read these words, she despised him with all her heart. That's pretty intense. That's an intense reaction. And sometimes exuberant worship, sometimes when people express their worship in a particular ways, it does provoke that sort of response in some. And she doesn't just think this. She doesn't just despise David. She says it. Verse 20, how the king of Israel, she says, and you, you can just hear the voice, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the, slave, of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Michael, Michael, is appalled at her husband's behavior, his worship. And David's stung by her words. Of course he is. But he responds with summing, some stinging words of his own. Here's what he says. You can read it there. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. As it was before the Lord, I will celebrate. I will become even more undignified than this. Yikes. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls that you've spoke of, I will be held in honor. And let me just make a couple of comments and, and then we're done. See, David, his conduct and his worship was before the Lord. David was not performing for his wife. David was not performing for the crowd. His worship, his undignified dancing, which he's going to do more of, it seems, and then some, is for an audience of one. 
It was an offering intended for the Lord's eyes, not for those of the servant girls. And anyway, according to David, the servant girls will honor me. Why? In other words, because ordinary people recognize sincere worship when they see it. You mightn't. These servant girls know my heart. I'm doing this before the Lord. They can see that. They can see the integrity. They can see the humility. They can see the spirit and the truth in which I'm doing this. And David worshipped and celebrated before the Lord to please God, to honor God. And surely that is the core characteristic of true worship. It's not about style. It's about substance and sincerity. Worship for an audience of one. Mikhail doesn't come across it all well in the closing scene of chapter 6. Look at this. She's caught up with herself and what she thinks and what she thinks other people think of her and of her husband. And so she wants to place restraint and she wants to put a dampener in things, but David's having none of it. And the chapter finishes on a rather low note, a sad note. It sounds like a statement of judgment. Look at the very final verse of chapter 6, verse 23. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's tough. In that culture, that's particularly tough. It's harsh, but it communicates something of the consequences and implications of self-obsession and also a critical judgmental attitude. And I realize there may be more going on here regarding the bigger picture as David cements his position as king, but at the very least, we do need to be so careful about what we say regarding the worship of others. And so the chapter finishes, and we'll pick it up again next week. Season two continues. But let me leave you with just two key thoughts and challenges. And they're these, and they're simple. God is holy. So let us maintain a sense of awe and reverence, and let's express that in obedience. And secondly, worship for an audience of one. May all our worship be done before the Lord. And don't be too harsh on those who express it differently.